Some people just know how to make an entrance. You know what I'm talking about? They just know how to make an entrance. A few years ago, Anna and I were at a wedding in California, and we were relaxing at a table for the reception, enjoying the food and the company, and a man walked in. He looked to be in his mid-20s. He had uh, uh, what I would consider to be sort of a 70s-style swagger going, and by that, I mean he had a very large collar on a button-up shirt that was only buttoned to just above his navel. (laughs) And yes, he had the gold chains. And because he was inside and we were in California, he necessarily had to have his sunglasses on. He walked over to our table and he stopped. And I watched him all the way through his entrance. He walked over, had this swagger going. I apologize if you're listening on podcast. You're missing out on the amazing swagger that is Caleb Miller. (laughs) He paused. He paused at our table kind of leaned back on one leg, pulled the sunglasses down to the bridge of his nose, looked at our table, found us all to be incredibly unbecoming and beneath him, so he swaggered on to the next table. (laughs) The man knew how to make an entrance. Ric Flair knows how to make an entrance. That's right. Thank you. (laughs) Joe. Joe, I'll pay you. I'll pay you after the service. All right. Ric Flair knows how to make an entrance, and I bring this up, the the guy at the wedding and Ric Flair, bring this up because the way we enter into a situation, the way a person enters into a situation or a relationship or any kind of context or or business can tell us an awful lot about that person, right? The sunglasses man with his chest hair flowing and all of his freaky glory, what was he communicating about himself with the way he entered in? And what does Ric Flair communicate about himself with the way he enters in? And what does the president, any president, uh, declare about himself, reveal about himself as he enters in? And today, what does Jesus declare about himself as he enters in? So a person enters into a situation, and the way they enter declares a whole lot about who they are it declares a whole lot about the position they occupy. It declares a whole lot about the role that they play. And this is true of a pro wrestler. It's true of presidents. It's true of Roman generals. And it's true of the Messiah. And folks, it's just as true of us. Ric Flair is one of those people. He's perhaps the most famous professional wrestler in the last 50 years. And even non-wrestling folks know who Ric Flair is. He's become sort of a cultural icon. He's the subject now of an ESPN documentary. His trademark, woo, is unmistakable. And his entries into the arena are unforgettable. The trumpets of 2001 Space Odyssey blare. And the drums hit. And the lights begin to flash and shine. And in some cases, fireworks start to go off. And out Flair struts with the lights reflecting off of his bedazzled robe, slowly turning so all could take in his glory, Flair would then strut to the ring. And say what you want about Ric Flair. There is an awful lot to say about the man. He knew how to make an entrance, and his entrance spoke to just what kind of performer and character he was, and he continues to be. Flair was a character with great arrogance. He didn't just strut to the ring. He strutted in the ring. He was the styling and profiling, limousine riding, jet flying, kiss stealing son of a gun whose shoes cost more than your house. And his entrance proclaimed that to you as he walked in. 
when his music hit, the lights came on, you knew just what you were going to get. Now, Jesus is unflare in a whole lot of ways. But he too knew, and he continues to know, how to make an entrance. And Jesus' entrance is an act of revelation. Jesus' entrance tells us who he is, his vocation. Jesus' entrance tells us how he will go about doing it. There weren't any drums. There weren't any trumpets. Jesus didn't have a reflective robe. But Jesus revealed his identity and his vocation in what we call the triumphal entry. His actions speak louder than words. And Jesus' actions here in Mark 11, 1 through 11, reveal that he is the Messiah and what kind of Messiah he will be. So here in this chapter, the first 11 verses of this particular chapter, chapter 11, Jesus' identity and vocation as Messiah are revealed in what I would call his three primary actions, the three things that he does. First, the entrance itself as he rides on the back of a young donkey is a revelation, a statement. Second, the reception of praise by the people or from the people is itself a statement. And third, Jesus going to the temple is itself a statement. And as we look at these three actions of revelation, Jesus doing in order to reveal, let's talk just a bit about what the Jewish people of Jesus' day were looking for and then see how Jesus' actions reveal him to be the Messiah. The Jewish people of the first century held out a hope. They held out an expectation for Messiah, the anointed one, to come and deliver them. Messiah was sort of what we could maybe call a super David. He was a rescuer, a hero out of the line of David who would come and rescue and deliver them from the power of the world. At that time, it was Rome. This expectation, this desire for Messiah wasn't new. It wasn't a new development. It actually was a hope that was very much part of the identity of the Jewish people. And it's a, made out of promises and prophecies of a deliverer that go back all the way into their history, into the pages of what we call the Old Testament. There's a number of prophetic promises made about Messiah, this agent of Yahweh who was promised to come and set things right by conquering Israel's enemies and establishing the kingdom of God's people on the earth. Among these messianic prophecies was one in particular from Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. St. Matthew and St. John explicitly quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, in their gospel narrative of the triumphal entry. And Mark and Luke don't explicitly quote from it, but all of the gospel accounts include the fact, the information, that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey. And so without having to say a word, simply by riding in the city, Jesus revealed himself to be Messiah in fulfillment of, Je of Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9, rejoice greatly, your king is coming, riding on a donkey. And here he comes in the person of Jesus. 
actions speak louder than words. His entrance reveals who he is. But what did the people actually understand? You know, it's one thing for Jesus to do something, but it's another thing for people to catch a hold of it, to understand it, to grasp a hold. And what we see in Mark's gospel account and in all of the gospel accounts of the triumphal entry is that they, for at least a few moments, got it. Mark tells us in chapter 11, verse 9, that those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is praise. Praise given to Jesus in recognition that he is Messiah. They shouted out, Hosanna, which literally means save us. They shouted out bits of scripture from Psalm 118, which reflected their belief that Jesus was indeed Messiah, the long-awaited king, who would come and deliver them from their oppressors and establish God's kingdom upon earth. And did Jesus accept that praise, or did Jesus rebuke that praise? Yeah, they got some details wrong about how Jesus was going to establish God's kingdom. But what did Jesus do? He, he welcomed the praise. He received their praise. And in fact, St. Luke records that the Pharisees, as they often were, very fussy individuals, they were offended by the crowds proclaiming of Jesus to be Messiah. And they were offended by Jesus receiving that proclamation. They basically said, listen, Jesus, get the rabble to shut up. They're wrong. Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus, by riding upon the donkey, did what the Messiah was to do. Jesus received the praise the, of the crowd as Messiah. And then Jesus went to the temple. This too seems to be part of the hope for the Messiah found in the expectations of the Jewish people. There's a connection between the Messiah and right temple worship. King David cast a vision for the building of the temple and began to make preparations for it. His son Solomon the king built it. Through the course of time and the history of Israel, the temple fell into disrepair and worship became corrupted. A son of David, king, uh, a son, grandson, in the line of David, kings Hezekiah and Josiah cleansed it and renewed it. Later, after the exile, Zerubbabel and Joshua rebuilt it. They were part of the leadership of Israel. Judas Maccabeus, in between the Old Testament and the New, he led a uh, purging program where he was able to uh, reclaim the city of Jerusalem and the temple from the Syrians, purged it clean, connected to leadership. And again, the renovations of the temple were a central part of Herod's claims to power. There's a connection between kingship and temple, between the Messiah and the temple. And Jesus ends his triumphal entry at the temple. St. Mark has Jesus enter into the temple precincts to do some reconnaissance, but he returns the next day to pronounce judgment upon it as he cleanses it. This whole event, the triumphal entry, <clears throat> this whole thing reveals Jesus to be the Messiah, the long-expected and long-desired Messiah. His actions speak louder than words. His entry shows that he is the king, but it also shows what kind of king he would be. The way a person enters into a situation or a relationship or any kind of context can tell us a whole lot about that person. The position they occupy, the role they play. It's true of a pro wrestler, it's true of a president, it's true of a Roman general. 
and it's true of the Messiah. In ancient Rome, there was a tradition of holding what is called a triumph to celebrate a military hero, military conquest. Essentially, a triumph was a parade that entered into the city through, from outside into the city through a very special gate that was only used for the triumph. It was a lavish procession which went through the streets of Rome. And as Mark Cartwright remarks, it would have been one of the most impressive sights the citizens would see, which is saying something in a city like Rome. Before Jesus was born, the Roman general Pompey had three triumphs in the years 80, 71, and 61 B.C. Julius Caesar and his successor Octavian, also known as Augustus, had celebrated multiple triumphs over the course of, their, of several days in 46 and 29 B.C., respectively. And in each of these examples, the conquering hero displayed Ric Flair-esque pomp, extravagance, and celebration. They would have ridden in a spectacular war chariot pulled by four magnificent horses. They were war heroes, after all. They rode in in the equivalent of a tank. They would have worn a laurel crown upon their heads. They would have carried, would have carried a laurel branch in their right hand. And in their left hand, they would have had a scepter made of ivory with an eagle at its top, a symbol of their victory, a symbol of their triumph. They would have been the center of attention, treated almost as if they were a god. As the crowds amassed around them, they would have been celebrated and praised. They would have been adored. Behind them in the war chariot would have been a slave who had the job of holding a golden crown above their heads while whispering in their ears, look behind you, look behind you. Even amongst all the adoration, this was a reminder that they were still mortal and not actually a god after all. That's the way Roman war heroes, conquerors, entered their cities. Hailed as generals and heroes, as those who conquered their enemy of Rome through their military prowess, and thus they were worthy to be served by others. But that's not Jesus. And that's not the way Jesus entered into Jerusalem, and that's not the way Jesus proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. Back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we hear a description of Messiah, the one who's mounted on the donkey. And listen again. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This king who enters into his city riding on a donkey, Zechariah proclaims, is righteous. The king is lawful, and he is just, and he is correct. In fact, this righteous king can be said to be the one who sets the law. Zechariah says that this king who rides on the back of a donkey who is righteous also has salvation. And it very well could be understood in two ways. First, it could be understood to mean the king himself has been saved or delivered. And second, it could be understood that this king will be the saving and delivering agent for his people. And the scholar Walter Kaiser has commented that it is probably best to be understood both ways. The king will be delivered himself from death and in turn will reveal himself to be the deliverer, the rescuer. 
This righteous and saving king is also referred to as humble, as gentle, one who has experienced affliction, one who's experienced trial, one who is other-centered in life. And he comes riding on a donkey. A Roman general enters into Rome in a triumph, and it's all about him. Jesus, Messiah, enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, and it's all about everybody else. He rides upon the donkey. He enters into the city of Jerusalem, and with him come righteousness and salvation, even as he faces and endures trial. In Rome, the mighty triumphal, the mighty triumphal entries would wind their way through the city streets, but they would always end at the temple of Jupiter, Optimus Maximus. And there at the temple of Jupiter, Optimus Maximus, the victor would sacrifice a bull and would offer treasure, one in combat, to honor that God. Jesus, too, went to the temple. The day after his triumphal entry, Jesus went into the temple. He pronounced judgment upon it. He cleansed it. And rather than institute a renewed sacrificial system in his prophetic actions surrounding the fig tree and the cleansing, Jesus announces its end. There is one more sacrifice to be made, and it will not be made in the Holy of Holies or upon an altar in the temple. There is one more sacrifice to be made, and that will be the perfect, final, all-sufficient sacrifice of himself on Good Friday on a wooden cross. He reveals himself to be the Messiah, humble and righteous, the one who rescues in his own, through his own, conquering of death. Jesus declares himself to be a king that would exercise other-centered, other-seeking, self-emptying power. This is what Martin Luther called left-handed power, power that looks like weakness, vulnerability, service, and suffering. And this is why Jesus is unflair. This is why Jesus is un-Caesar. Because his entrance into Jerusalem is a declaration that he is the Messiah, and it declares just what kind of Messiah he will be. He's humble and gentle, other-seeking and self-sacrificing. But what does this have to do with us? The way a person enters into a situation or relationship or any kind of context can tell us a lot about that person. The position they occupy, the role they play, it's true of a pro wrestler, it's true of a president, of a Roman general, it's true of the Messiah, and it's true of us. As Emmanuel Church seeks to be a church that glorifies God by blessing people with gospel ministries that they may believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and join us in building his kingdom, what does our entrance say about us? How do we enter into neighborhoods that are around us? How do we as individuals enter into our neighborhoods where we reside or into businesses where we work or into businesses with whom we have relationship? How do we as a people and how do we as individuals enter into relationships with family, friends, and neighbors? How do we enter into relationships with people who do not yet know Jesus? How do we enter in and what does our entrance declare about who we are. Do we enter in like Jesus, or do we enter in like Ric Flair? To expect or demand that other people from different cultures or generations 
share a specific political view, non-salvation values or way of life is right-handed power. Let me give you an example. In the 18th and 19th centuries, as Christian missionaries took the gospel of Jesus Christ into Africa and Asia, they expected, maybe even demanded, that the natives of those lands accept English culture along with Jesus. That they dress a certain way, that they eat a certain way, that they sing a certain song, that they use the right utensils. And we recognize that these missionaries came with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They came with salvation, but they also came with culturally infused right-handed power expectations. Let me give you another example, perhaps more up-to-date, more modern. Here in America in the year 2018, there seems to be much stress and tension between generations. The builders have passed out of positions of leadership and prominence. The boomers are closing in on retirement. My generation, Gen X, are coming into the fullness of positional authority. The much maligned millennial generation is coming into adulthood. And there is even now a new generation of young men and women who are in high school and college that don't yet have a name because no one seems to be able to agree on a name for them, including themselves. The boomers think that the Xers are a bunch of slackers. And the Xers think the boomers are stuck in their ways. The millennial generation, those born between 1982 and 1993, they seem to be everyone's favorite target as they're lambasted for being lazy and spoiled. And yet, every one of these stereotypes don't actually hold water. I'm a Gen Xer. I've never been able to slack much, and neither has my brother, quite frankly, because we didn't have time to slack off. We were working for my father. Every millennial I know, especially including the millennials of Emmanuel Church, are hardworking, responsible, Jesus-loving moms and dads who are neither lazy nor spoiled. So how do we as the church, from a variety of different generations, generational preferences and generational values, enter into life together? And what do we have to say, or how do we go about saying it? How do we go about proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, speaking truth and loving people with whom we have cultural value differences, generational differences? How do we enter into relationships with people of other generations than ourselves with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we come in with the right-handed power demanding conformity? Or do we come in with the left-handed power of Jesus Christ? To expect or demand that people from different cultures, backgrounds, or generations share in the same cultural values and to make that an issue of salvation and belonging to a church is to reveal an attitude of entitlement that younger generations are so often accused of. And this is right-handed power, and it is inappropriate in the church and in the church's ministries. So what do we do? We call to enter in like Jesus. St. Paul captures it so well in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, the King, Jesus, the Messiah, enters in as humble, as righteous, seated on a donkey, as bringing salvation and deliverance through his conquering of death. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 4, I think is in incredibly instructive for us in this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' humble entrance into Jerusalem is a physical mirror of the reality of his humble entrance in the incarnation, where Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And so we're called then, like Jesus, to enter in looking to the interest of others. We are called to enter in with the mind of Jesus Christ, which St. Paul tells us we already have. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, only possible through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, working within us, union with Christ. A life that is other-seeking, that is self-emptying, an entrance that is righteous and gentle and humble, an entrance that offers salvation in the name of Jesus. Righteous, gentle, humble, self-emptying, and other-seeking. These words describe Christ, and they are to describe the people of his kingdom. This means loving your neighbor as yourself. This means seeing others in full light. This means refusing the right-handed power of compliance and relationships with others. This means looking to the interests and needs of others. This means listening. The way a person enters into a situation or a relationship or any kind of context can tell us a lot about that person, the position they occupy, the role they play. This is true of a pro wrestler, of a president, of a Roman general, and of the Messiah, and it is true of us. Jesus' actions in Mark chapter 11 speak louder than his words, and his actions reveal he is the Messiah. And it reveals that he is the Messiah who is humble, righteous, gentle, and bringing salvation. What do our actions say about us? As we enter in, who do we reveal ourselves to be? I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.